0: This episode is the first in our series about the six moral frameworks. We'll be discussing consequences. In coming episodes, we'll talk about inner thoughts, virtues, foundational ideals, care, and social agreements.
1: From the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm Andy Cullison.
0: And I'm Kate Berry. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story.
1: Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But this is the first of a series of special episodes, and I don't think anyone will think we're offering legal advice.
0: And if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. Andy, tell us some more about this special series we're starting.
1: Well, we normally take a case and zero in on hidden, sometimes not hidden, ethical issues that we think is part of the source of tension. Then we try to unpack that dilemma We try our best to outline different moral or ethical reasons that someone might have for their stance on both sides of that dilemma. But one of the hard things about this is identifying what all of those different moral reasons or stances are that people could take. Sometimes they're very easy to spot. Sometimes you can completely miss them. And one of the things that really helps spot those reasons is if you know generally the different kinds of categories or families of reasons that people tend to think matter morally. And in fact, almost everything that would make someone get upset about a situation will likely fall under one of six categories. And so, you know, knowing what those categories are, seeing examples of how they might play out, I think can really help people do this work on their own when they find themselves in a situation where there's a kind of tension. So to that end, we're going to do a special series of episodes on those categories. And instead of starting with a case, a specific particular case, finding the dilemma and then finding those reasons without telling you, the audience, what category they're in, uh, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to introduce you to one of those categories, help you see why some people would think that's a really important category, and then give you examples of when it might be in play in a workplace setting.
0: Great. So instead of doing a case, we're going to be sort of showing off our tools that we use to help solve moral or ethical issues.
1: Yeah, I think of it like uh, this is a seeing how the sausage is made kind of thing, but also learning how to do it yourself. Now, I, I want to say one thing. If you're an ethicist who's you know studied ethics, teaches ethics, or if you've taken classes in ethics, you'll be familiar with some other ways of chopping up these categories. But what we've tried to do is carve out the categories in ways that are less jargony and kind of easier to get your head around. But what I hope this series of episodes does is by by having the vocabulary of these frameworks, having the examples that help people understand why they should take that category seriously. And having some examples of how you might encounter this in the workplace will give you a set of tools you can use to start to unpack and and find those hidden moral dilemmas for yourself in the workplace.
0: So which of those categories are we starting with today?
1: Well, I'd like to start with what I like to call the consequences framework because that is the first thing that almost Everybody recognizes as being morally relevant. And I think it's so obvious to people when the consequences go a certain way that something is problematic about a situation that it's easy to fixate on them and not quite see how some of the other frameworks might be in play. So I think this is a good place to start.
0: So most people will judge a decision being good or bad by how it turns out. That's sort of the easiest, most natural way that people judge actions.
1: A lot of people tend to judge rightness or wrongness based on like, what does the action cause? How much pain does it cause? How much pleasure does it cause? How much life is lost or gained, right? It's, it's really a very outcomes-oriented kind of framework. I'll give a simple example. Now, there are folks who think only the consequences matter. They're called consequentialists. A a pure consequentialist would say only the outcomes matter. Let's say I bought a bunch of donuts and brought them with me to the office, like a, a dozen or a baker's dozen. So I got 13 donuts here. And I'm thinking about whether to eat them all myself or share them with the rest of the office. Now, a consequentialist would say, think about this. If you eat them all, you're gonna probably feel pretty awful, pretty sick throughout the day, right? Also, like what else if I eat them all? Couldn't it cause other bad things?
0: Well, if you brought them into our office and didn't share, I might think that you were a selfish jerk.
1: Exactly, right? So it's it's it it breeds bad blood, right? You 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 don't come across as a team player, you come across as selfish. But if I share, you know, neither of those things happen, and in addition to neither of those things happen, a consequentialist would say like Pleasure is just a function of chemicals in the brain. So you're getting all the pleasure from the donut that you ate. You probably don't get much pleasure from each subsequent donut. And now if there's like 11 people in the office and they all got pleasure from their donut, right? You've also amped up the pleasure in this scenario.
0: Not to mention that you'd get additional pleasure from everyone coming and thanking you for the donut.
1: That's right. Right. Yeah. You'd feel good about yourself. People would thank you. Uh, yeah. All the all those things make it pretty clear that the best consequences are going to come from sharing. And so a pure consequentialist would say that's what you morally ought to do. You you ought to share the donuts. But for the most day to day decisions, consequentialists say, no, you just have to have done something that as a matter of fact has the best outcome. You don't have to be this cold calculating person who's like weighing things on a scale each time you make a decision.
0: Yeah, I think that consequentialists kind of get a reputation for being a little robotic and cold. It takes a lot of spontaneity or just like goodness out of it, but that doesn't seem to actually be what they're advocating.
1: I don't think you have to be a pure consequentialist to make good use of the consequentialist framework when deciding what to do. So I'm, I'm just going to show my cards. I myself am not a pure consequentialist, but I still think there's a way in which you can take the insights from consequentialist thinking to make decisions about what to do on how to make use of these frameworks. Right. Okay, so we've, we've introduced the simplest idea in the consequences framework.
0: They say share your donuts.
1: Yeah, they say share your donuts because it's going to cause the most good. Now, there are a couple of things that I think are worth keeping in mind is that people have different views about when or how to weigh consequences. So one method of weighing consequences has to do by looking at the consequences of an individual action. Like, do I share the donuts today? But there's another like version of consequences that says, actually, that can get the wrong result sometimes if you only focus on the consequences of a single action. Because there are certain scenarios where maybe what you ought to do is pick a rule that if you followed that rule all the time, you would have the best consequences in the long run. So my favorite example is what I call the defense attorney's dilemma. This is the easiest way to see the difference. Okay. So a defense attorney always wrestles with the fact of, gosh, what if I'm defending this person and they're actually a murderer, right? Or or even worse, what if you start to suspect that they really are actually a murderer? It would be very tempting for a defense attorney to say, I should tank this person's defense. I should drag my heels. I shouldn't object when the prosecution does something that they're not allowed to do.
0: All of a sudden, I've forgotten my law education and I'm just a bumbling lawyer now. Sorry.
1: Exactly, right? I should basically sabotage the defense to ensure that this guilty person goes to jail. It's a, it's it's basically a, an example of vigilante justice, right? You know, you're taking it upon yourself to decide whether this person's guilty or not, and you're making sure that they go to prison for it. Now- Someone who thinks we should only care about the consequences of a single action might say, yeah, that's a good thing for the defense attorney to do. But here's how defense attorneys often will defend their actions. And it's consequence related, but it's not focused on the consequences of the action. What defense attorneys say is, look, I know that I'm sometimes going to make a strong case and enable a guilty person to go free, but... If defense attorneys were to just take it upon themselves to decide when people should or should not go to jail, it undermines the integrity of the justice system, and it makes it more likely that we would put innocent people in jail. And it's way worse to put innocent people in jail than let guilty people go free. So as a general rule, all defense attorneys should agree we are going to give our clients the absolute best defense possible, we are going to demand that the state prove that they're guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt, even if we secretly know that they're probably guilty, we're going to stick to the standards of proof set forth by the state. And I'm going to make sure that the state does that. We will have better consequences in the long run for our society, even if in an individual case, I sometimes let a guilty person go free. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's complicated. And I think on an individual case, you might feel bad about it, but definitely as a rule for all of us, much preferable. I guess it's why people become ethicists to figure it out.
1: And I actually think this tension between the consequences of an action and the consequences of adopting a rule come up all over the place in the workplace. And so that those most of our examples are going to focus on this tension. Yeah. So, One of the ways in which I think this comes up all over the place in the workplace is you encounter situations where compliance rules seem like they might be a little too rigid. So, you know, there's a rule that you always follow this protocol, but you find that in this particular moment, following this particular protocol is disastrous. Like if we do it this way, we will lose an important client uh we won't get information that's vital to the success of a project right i mean there's all sorts of ways in which ignoring the rules are tempting but you think you've got a really really good reason to do it right sure to me that's one of the most obvious cases where a tension between the consequences of an action versus the consequences of adopting a rule sort of come into conflict and and you'll have some serious thinking to do and there seems to be a culture in a lot of workplaces that depending on what the rule is or depending on the severity of the consequences of breaking the rule that that some some workplaces have a culture that are like if you see a really good reason why this rule doesn't get it right sometimes people will be like they're not going to blame you if you didn't do it in that way right but, you know there, I bet people have countless situations where they go right to their supervisor and say look I know we had this rule, but here's why I had to break it or here's why I had to not to do it and you know a lot of times there can be forgiveness in those situations or oh okay I see. And then that even leads to a revision of the rule, right? They're like, "Ooh, our rule didn't anticipate this thing." And so I think I think usually where folks find that it would be most okay to favor the consequences of the action is when you're really, really confident that nobody saw the consequence of this rule and that you think it's going to be a minor revision to the rule is just going to be rubber stamped as soon as you point it out.
0: Yeah. But there have to be times where that's not true too, because it's really easy for us to think this is an exception, that this client is too big, let's bend the rules a little bit. There must be examples also where you should stick to the rule, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And in fact, in, in almost all cases, it seems like The only time you'd want to break a rule is if it was like super time sensitive and you didn't even have time to talk to your supervisor about why you thought the rule gets it wrong here. I'd say the best thing to do is go to the supervisor and say, look, the rule, look how this rule really screwed it up, right? Look how this rule really gets it wrong in this case. Can I get your permission to suspend the rule and go do this thing? And then then can we have a conversation with... The powers that be about a revision to this rule because this rule is disastrous, right? That's sort of that's sort of the idea, right? So here's an interesting scenario where there's something that seems really restrictive and really stifling, and it would be very tempting to deviate from the rule, particularly in the moment um, when no one else is around and no one will find out that you did it, but. It should really give you pause deviating from the rule. So here's the scenario. A lot of organizations are pushing for things like patterned interview formats, where you ask the same set of questions for every candidate, and you try to keep the conversation limited to things that are relevant to the job. So what this rules out is asking different questions based on the background of the candidate, or just kind of, kind of going off on a conversational riff, right, based on something in their background. So, for example, you know, if you saw that they went to University of Michigan and you went to University of Michigan, like immediately going into bonding mode over that kind of thing. And you might think, gosh, like I'm, I'm not allowed to just like bond over the fact that like we both went to University of Michigan.
0: Wouldn't that be good? Isn't that a sign that we'd work well together? Isn't that like, it seems like, isn't that personable? And, t- and treating um, a candidate like a human being rather than an automaton.
1: Exactly, exactly. See, it's a very, very tempting line, right? But what this will do is it will prioritize candidates who share your interests and hobbies, right?
0: Or background.
1: Or background, exactly. Share your interests, hobbies, or background. And so when you try to find those points of what do we both get excited talking to each other about, you are immediately going to completely narrow the pool of candidates to people who are very like you. So from, a, from the perspective of diversity, equity, and inclusion, while it might be tempting to engage in banter about shared interests, it, it ultimately is going to lead to really, really exclusive Hiring practices, so that's that's one that I really try to stick to rigidly. Like I, you know, we do a pattern interview format, and I try my best to keep things on the rails and and only focused on things that are relevant to the job. There will be ample time for that bonding and team building kind of stuff when the person is hired, uh, but in an interview, it probably ought to wait.
0: When I think of consequences and making choices. I think a lot about short-term versus long-term and weighing those consequences, that things that seem really attractive in the short-term, but are detrimental in the long-term or vice versa, those seem to come up a lot in the workplace too, right?
1: Absolutely. This is the other tricky thing about weighing consequences. It's very, very easy to prioritize short-term gain without thinking about long-term kind of issues. I mean, this this happens in professional life. This happens in our personal life. This is our, our whole struggle with willpower for ourselves is the short term gain of whatever in the moment would make us happy versus the, the long term kind of ensuring uh, a lifetime of happiness or ensuring happiness for our future selves. Uh, corporations struggle with the same thing. And that tension right there is, again, a tension between basically the consequences of individual in the moment actions uh, and things that could yield benefit right now versus the consequences of adhering to a kind of policy or general practice that has better long-term sort of returns on consequences, so to speak. And I can give a couple of examples. Sure. Let's, Let's say that it's a tough budget year and we're thinking about implementing sort of austerity measures. And layoffs are on the table, and you're really, really concerned with like the quarterly results that your shareholders are going to be looking at. And so, what you're thinking is maybe we can avoid some layoffs if we just implement some some austerity measures. And so, we don't lay anybody off, uh, but we cut back on spending on X, Y, and Z, and we cut back this budget in this way, and and that looks like. An action that's going to yield the best consequences, particularly in the moment
0: and seems really um, concerned about your workforce, right you don't want to lay people off of course that's a good thing
1: absolutely you don't want to leave people in the lurch. but if you did this every single time like if every time you had a budget crisis you considered whether to do austerity measures or whether to lay people off and you did that every single time, then you'll basically never have the cash or capital or investment in the kinds of things you would need to continue to keep the business afloat or foster the kind of innovation that might be necessary to stop having budget problems every year. And so this is a kind of tension, again, between the consequences of a single action versus the consequences of what happens if we made the decision this way every single time?
0: Right. So you might have a larger workforce, but you also may stagnate.
1: And if the company closes down, the people that you laid off lose their jobs anyway. And so does everybody else in the organization, right? So the solvency of the company and being able to continue to employ people from adopting a rule might put pressure on you. And again, I'm not saying which of these is the right way. I'm just pointing out that this is a key tension within the consequences framework and another example of how the consequences of a single action might be in tension with thinking more about the consequences of adopting a kind of rule.
0: The thing that comes to my mind is pollution that uh, many companies will in the, I mean, not even that short term will pollute because it is cheaper or an easier or they have plausible deniability that it's really not that damaging. But then in the long term, not only have they destroyed the environment around them, but their name is probably poisoned as well. That like, I don't want to buy from this place because look what they did. I, they're only famous because there was a pollution disaster. It may have seemed smart in the short term, but in the long term, you've destroyed your public image.
1: You know, here's here's another good example uh, where the consequences of an action and the consequences of a, like a compliance rule run into tension. Let's say you could land a contract really quickly if you could just use this one bit of technology that has not yet gone through your IT department's network for security review. And you say, forget about it. I'm just going to download this thing and I'm going to use it because, hey, this is a big deal client. And and let's say you were lucky and the thing happened to be a non-malicious piece of software and it happened not to disrupt the network. You might think, great, the consequences of that particular action turned out to be really, really good. But what about like, what if people always did it this way, right? What if every time someone thought they could land a con- a, a big client, right? right? Uh, eventually you might have something kind of catastrophic. And so you might say, as a general rule, we are all better off in the long run if we agree to adhere to the IT security policy and not not go rogue and download the software whenever we see a particular advantage in the moment.
0: It really seems to be figuring out when is it important to stick to the letter of the law and not cut corners. And when is it admissible or maybe even beneficial to break the mold a little bit and do something that is not just always sticking to a rule that might be kind of old and out of touch. So it's the wisdom and judgment to decide between the two. So what sort of questions should you ask yourself when you're trying to figure out what to do? If you're, if you're comparing long-term and short-term, or if you're comparing privileging a single act or sticking to a regular rule?
1: There are a couple of easy answers, and then there's a couple of more complicated answers. So questions to ask yourself that, that will help you. So of course, the first and easiest obvious question is, who is affected by this action, right? We sometimes call it, who are the stakeholders? And, and really, you want to broaden this, right? Because consequences are supposed to matter for, for everybody, according to the consequentialist, not just the people in your office, not just the people on your team, but the people in your community. Like consequentialists don't make distinctions between benefit for your organization and benefit for your customers or benefit for the community. So you really got to think about everybody who might be impacted by this decision. So it's kind of good to like, Get at if it's a really complicated issue, just start to list out all the people or groups who might be affected by this. And then start to think, okay, how much harm might be caused by this? How much benefit might be caused by this? Right? That's that's the first step in terms of how do you take the consequences framework? How do you start to identify potential consequences that are morally relevant? So that's step one. If you want to help make yourself sensitive to the more rule-based consequences framework, you sort of ask yourself, what if we always went with this strategy in this particular situation? Would there be something bad about always doing it this way?
0: So that's the defense attorney thing.
1: Yeah, exactly, so the defense attorney. So a defense attorney's deciding whether or not to frame their client or sabotage. If they ask themselves, what if, I al- what if I always did this? And in fact, what if all defense attorneys always sabotaged their client's case when they thought they were guilty? Then a light bulb or a red flag goes off. and They're like, oh, yeah, if every single defense attorney, if that was what we always did, it would be disastrous. And so we should follow a certain rule that we know will have better consequences in the long run. That's how you can start to identify if there are any rule consequentialists or rule consequences frameworks in play. So those are the two easy ones. Those are two easy ways to just identify when the consequence framework is in play, the individual short-term act version and the long-term sort of rule version. Now there's a more complicated thing that I don't yet have an answer to, and this might be worth an episode unto itself, which is sometimes it seems like we should prioritize the consequences of the action in the moment, even if there's a rule that says we shouldn't do this thing. And sometimes it seems like, I don't care how good you think it would be to deviate from the rule. You do not deviate from this rule.
0: Well, I guess that's why we develop things like the frameworks and a, and a vocabulary to talk about ethics, because the things get really tricky. And there's not a single answer for all problems about about different consequences.
1: That's right. I mean, I hazard a guess that it's, how you would decide whether to prioritize the consequences of a rule versus the consequences of the action is just how bad it would be, right? I mean, that that's sort of on brand for consequentialism, right? Like, if the consequences of not adhering to this rule all the time are bad, but not that bad, and the consequences of not doing this thing right now in this moment are really, really, really bad, then you might think, okay, prioritize the action. But if the consequences of breaking the rule, you can imagine situations where it would just be awful, then you might think, okay, uh, even if I see an opportunity in this moment, the consequences of people not following this rule are so incredibly bad that I've got to stick to the rule. And you know, I can't deviate from this rule until we revise the rule in some way. You know We've talked about the consequences framework and we've talked about a kind of tension within the consequences framework. Uh, But there are a whole bunch of other things that people think matter morally. Yeah. Okay, so this is a special series of episodes in which we want to introduce you, the listener, to these different frameworks and get a sense as to how you could prep yourself to identify when these frameworks might be in play in a workplace setting. So the next five episodes in this series are going to be dedicated to each of those five remaining frameworks. We've been talking about how the consequences framework has a kind of internal tension um, and how that pops up in the workplace all the time. These other frameworks are basically responses to the consequentialist who says only the consequences matter. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna juxtapose these frameworks to the consequences framework. And in some cases, some of the other frameworks So you can see how these tensions might arise between these other non-consequence-based frameworks and the consequences framework. We're gonna give you a variety of workplace examples where these other frameworks uh, tend to be clearly in play. So I hope you enjoyed this one and uh, stay tuned for the others. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison.
0: And I'm Kate Berry. If you have a dilemma or tension that you're dealing with in the workplace, email me at Katherineberry at and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air.
1: I really hope you take Kate up on that. I also hope you can take some of what we've discussed here and get it to work.
0: If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org getethics to work. That's all one word, Get Ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue.Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of Depa University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.